Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the gunpowder plot, a very famous conspiracy that sought to kill King James I and VI as he opened the English Parliament in the House of Lords back in 1605. This is a story that I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, You probably know the rough details, gunpowder, treason and plot, of course. But do you know why it happened? Do you know who else was involved outside of the famous Guy Fawkes? Do you know what this group of conspirators was actually trying to achieve with the gunpowder plot? Well, all these questions and more will be answered today as we get across the plot that was dreamt up by treasonous Catholics seeking to rid themselves of the Protestant King James and bring Catholicism back to England. Guy Fawkes didn't act alone. He wasn't even the main conspirator, in fact. And today... We'll meet characters like Robert Catsby, uh, Thomas Percy, uh, the people who were really behind the gunpowder plot. They managed to conceal barrels and barrels of gunpowder right under the English House of Lords in London uh, with a plan to ignite it and blow up not just the king, but all the other most powerful men in England all in one go. But there was a lot more to it than just the gunpowder. We'll talk about that today. There's a lot of very interesting detail to this story, including the political and religious background to the plot itself. So, we'll explain why the plot began, how it was undertaken, what its ultimate legacy was as well. Even if you are familiar with the gunpowder plot, even if you think you've heard this story before, maybe you'll learn a thing or two today as we go into much more detail. But before we begin, thanks go out to so many alert listeners today for suggesting this topic. A a very, very popular suggestion. Uh, Chris Brett, Claire Marquart, Brenna Willett, Graham Keenan, August Barnett. There might be more. I really don't know why I didn't get to this story sooner with with all the suggestions that I've got. But we're here now. Let's get underway. Time for the story of the gunpowder plot. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back 
to the early 16th century, to almost 100 years before the actual plot itself. We're going to uh, spend 100 years or so setting the scene. To understand why the gunpowder plot even took place to begin with, we need to understand, most fundamentally, the religious situation within England in the lead-up to it. And for that, we have to talk about Henry VIII, famous for creating an all-new flavour of Christianity as he burnt through six different marriages, chopping off the heads of more or less anyone who disagreed with him, including, you know, a couple of his wives. Henry VIII created the Church of England, a Protestant faith in opposition to Roman Catholicism and the Pope. And throughout the 16th century, England became more and more Protestant in nature after Henry VIII created Anglicanism. And this continued under the reign of Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I. Things got harder and harder for Catholics living in England as their faith became more and more marginalised. As a religious and political minority, English Catholics faced discrimination and persecution and day-to-day difficulties in, uh, in their lives. Now the shoe's on the other foot. For Catholics, how about that? But as the childless Elizabeth pointedly refused to name an heir, there were many English Catholics who were hoping that a Catholic would succeed her once she died and things would get better for them. They hoped for a successor like Isabella, the daughter of the Catholic King Philip II of Spain, or maybe even someone like Mary, Queen of Scots. But as you might remember from episode 19, Get Across It, Mary ended up getting her head chopped off as well, which was a common symptom of opposing Tudor monarchs back then. Anyway, ultimately, the successor for Elizabeth I was Mary, Queen of Scots' son, James VI and I. Uh, he was the King of Scotland before also coming to power in England after Elizabeth died in 1603. Uh, and to begin with, at least, because of his general tolerance of Catholics, the Catholics in England just kind of copped it. They just kind of accepted the new king. And even if he wasn't a Catholic, at least he wasn't being hugely uh, aggressive in his persecution or oppression of Catholics. So, as I say, they just kind of copped it. Catholics, Papists, Jesuits, uh, anyone with sympathies towards Rome realised that they probably could have it a lot worse than James, who was pretty moderate on religion. And, and he did make the promise that uh, he wouldn't <clears throat> persecute any that will be quiet and give an outward obedience to the law. Now, that said, right, the rest of Europe at this stage is embroiled in intense religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics, and England wasn't immune to this. While many English Catholics were happy enough to live and let live with James, many others weren't, and they were supported by foreign Catholic agitators who sought James's demise. For instance, the people in involved in the by-plot of 1603, also given the excellent name of the surprising treason, uh, as though some treason is thoroughly predictable, uh, these people planned to kidnap James, hold him in the Tower of London, and force him to be more accepting of Catholics by means unknown. A bold strategy. Other Catholics uh, actually sold out the priests who were behind this plot, uh, and while these priests were executed, James was grateful that other Catholics had been loyal to him, and so there weren't widespread recrimin recriminations after the byplot. But still, there were others. Uh, another treasonous Catholic plot, the main plot, didn't help the public standing of Catholics in England. And then in 1604, James discovered that his wife, Queen Anne, had been smuggled a set of rosary beads from the Pope. Now, Anne might have been a secret Catholic, we're, we're not sure of that, but in any case, James was furious. He'd tried to play nice, well, Sort of nice, anyway. Uh, and now his wife is being sent Catholic gifts from the Pope by James's own spies. He's not, he's had a gutful. He's, he's not having any, he's, he's absolutely sick of it. So he says, no, nah, no, nah, enough's enough. He boots all of the Catholic priests out of England and he starts to fine English Catholics for recusancy, which is refusing to attend Anglican church services. 
Thousands and thousands of pounds were collected from recusant Catholics, millions and millions of pounds in today's money. And between this and all the Catholic priests being expelled from England, some Catholics grew increasingly discontent with James's leadership. And then, in his opening speech in the English Parliament in 1605, James dashed Catholic hopes for more religious tolerance, a sentiment that was supported by Parliament debating the Popish Recusants Act of 1605, uh, which, if passed, would usher in a whole new set of restrictions on English Catholics. This act would make it an act of high treason to obey the Pope rather than the King, as well as a ton of other restrictions uh, restrictions on and punishments for Catholics in England. So the stage is set. In 1605, a mostly Protestant England had an unhappy minority of oppressed and persecuted Catholics whose original hopes that James would be more tolerant as a monarch, uh, these hopes have ultimately been broken. And this brings us to the beginning of the gunpowder plot. By now, you'll understand why disgruntled Catholics are wanting to remove James from power. With the support of the Pope and other powerful Catholic leaders, these malcontents are hoping to place a Catholic monarch back on the English throne and thereby restore Catholicism to England and end the persecution of English Catholics. So, what was to be done to achieve this? The neatest solution, of course, was to simply kill the king and install a new monarch on the throne, ideally a Catholic. And if this plot could perhaps remove James's close network of Protestant supporters, relatives, advisors, judges, parliamentarians, and other powerful Protestants, all the better, as there would be fewer people to resist a regime change. And so to begin the tale of the gunpowder plot properly, I want to introduce you to the most important person behind it. And as I said before, it is not Guy Fawkes. No, instead, it is a bloke named Robert Catsby. A younger fellow in his 30s, he's a minor noble and an avowed Catholic. He'd actually been part of an unsuccessful rebellion against Queen Elizabeth I back in 1603. He had been spared. He, had, he did make it out with his life, but he was heavily fined over £6 million in today's money. And after James took the throne, he, like so many other English Catholics, was unhappy with how James had gone from being reasonably tolerant of Catholics to booting out Catholic priests and levying all these very heavy uh, recusancy fines. Catsby was an agitator. In 1603, he sent a proposal to King Philip III of Spain, and he asked him to stage a full-on invasion of England, wherein English Catholics would rise up to support him once the Spanish arrived. But Philip wasn't interested, and the Pope wasn't either, quite prudently worrying that if the invasion failed, it would mean the utter destruction of Catholicism in England rather than the marginal tolerance that the religion had there at the time. So Catsby took a different tack. In early 1604, he met with some other Catholic malcontents and hatched a plot that would take out not just King James, but also all the other most powerful Protestants in England, all in one fell swoop. At this meeting, Catsby's cousin, Thomas Wintour, a wealthy Catholic who had watched his uncle, a priest, be hanged, drawn and quartered in 1586. This had made a very, very strong impression on Wintour, and he was not a fan of the Protestant, uh, the Protestant rulers in Westminster. Uh, and another bloke, John Wright, a skilled swordsman with very important connections who had also fought in that failed rebellion I mentioned earlier alongside, alongside Catsby. And during this meeting, Catsby proposed the idea of blowing up the House of Lords, one of the Houses of Parliament, during the state opening 
of Parliament, where not just King James would be there, but all those people I mentioned before. His inner circle, high-level government officials, and of course, a collection of powerful Protestant aristocrats, and a bunch of Catholics as well, but, you know, collateral damage. Winter wasn't convinced to begin with, but Catsby talked him around, and these three blokes therefore began what became known as the Gunpowder Plot, a plan to blow up the English Parliament while the King was in it. Both Winter and Wright recruited others to the cause. Winter recruited the bloke most famously associated with the whole affair, Guy Fawkes. I want to tell you about Guy Fawkes. He was a soldier. He had spent much of his life fighting for Catholic causes around Europe. Specifically, most of the time was spent fighting for Spain against the Protestant Dutch. He was a tall bloke, very strong bloke, had a lot of experience with military affairs and weaponry. Uh, And his reputation as both a a militant Catholic and as a man of action meant that he was a great pick to join the conspiracy. In particular, he had a specialised knowledge of gunpowder, which was one of the main reasons that he was brought on board. He was to be given responsibility for the gunpowder that would be used in the planned explosion. Also brought on board was a fella named Thomas Percy, another important fella in this uh, in this conspiracy, a friend of Catsby. He was married to Wright's sister uh, and uh, was, through his position as an agent for his second cousin, the Earl, the Earl of Northumberland, he had direct and regular access to King James and his court. So this bloke had a lot of political connections and uh, was in a good position to uh, play some of the more political roles in this plot as it as it unfolded. Now, it was also him that managed to secure premises for the plot to operate, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. These five blokes, Catsby, Winter, Wright, Fawkes and Percy, they are the original founding members of the conspiracy. On the 20th of May, 1604, they meet in the Duck and Drake Inn in London and they swear an oath of secrecy together. And so the gunpowder plot has begun in earnest. Parliament was due to open in February 1605. So they had a good amount of time to come up with a plan and put it into action. And now they are off. And I mentioned premises. The conspirators needed a base of operations. And it was indeed, as I said before, Thomas Percy, who was able to snag one for the team using his political connections. Percy was appointed to the Band of Gentlemen Pensioners, a group of bodyguards for the king. So this is a bit of a freebie for the conspirators, you'd think. But what was really important about this is that it gave Percy, right, who again is a servant of the Earl of Northumberland, it gave Percy a reason to look for a place to live in London without raising any suspicion or doing anything out of the ordinary. Of course, this bloke needs a place to stay in London. He's a bloody member of the the band of gentlemen pensioners. Of course, he needs to stay in town, right? So brilliant. He rented a place in Westminster near the Parliament building, which I, I should mention at this stage, looked nothing then like it does today. You're probably imagining the famous Palace of Westminster when you think of the uh, of the English or the British Parliament. Uh, you find that in London today on the, on the banks of the Thames. wasn't around back then. The current building was actually built after the old ones was, were destroyed. Uh, before that, it looked much more like a, I don't know, a castle, although a decorative one, not one built for defence. But it was built next to what also kind of looks like a church. And then between these buildings, there's a ton of other smaller buildings mixed in. Huge, big mess of a place. You can find pictures of it online. Anyway, Percy settled into his new lodgings. And to go with his new place, he also hired himself a new manservant. And this man so again, look, nothing suspicious about that. He's just moved in a new place, needs someone to help him look after it. So he hires a bloke who gives his name, publicly at least, as John Johnson, which is one of the worst fake names I've ever heard. The bloke was actually Guy Fawkes. 
But I don't know why they went with John Johnson. That sounds like the sort of name that you would see on like an uh, on one of those example ID cards that the government puts out to like show you what a driver's license is supposed to look like. Anyway, John Johnson, that's who they go with. That's what that's the name they go with. Uh, Percy's new place was near the River Thames, so the conspirators used a place owned by Catsby on the other side of the river in Lambeth to use as a storeroom, and there they began to stockpile gunpowder, and then they could very easily row it across to this place that was right next to the House of Parliament where uh, where Percy was staying. Now, Fawkes, as I said, military man, familiar with this sort of thing, very uh, very well experienced using gunpowder. Uh, he was put in charge of the store as it grew in the coming months, but during this time. Uh, as the plot began to uh, gain some traction momentum here, James only increased his persecution of Catholics and anti-Catholic sentiment grew as more anti-Catholic legislation entered Parliament. In October 1604, therefore, the conspirators added a new member to the group, Robert Keyes. He was put in charge of Catsby's property. Uh, and then they inadvertently had to add another conspirator to the group when Catsby's servant, a bloke named Thomas Bates, grew suspicious about what his master was up to with all the gunpowder and the coming and going. But Bates was happy enough to join in. He was another devout Catholic. He was very unhappy with what King James was doing, keen to see the end of the king. Uh, And so the conspirators continued their plotting and planning and preparations, but then the plan hit a bit of a snag. In December 1604, it was announced that Parliament wouldn't return in February 1605, as planned, due to concerns about the plague. Yes, the plague. Episode 90, get across it. Still around in 1605, still around today, for that matter. But instead, the uh, the reopening of Parliament has been pushed back until October 1605, so the conspirators had to change tack. Now, this next bit isn't certain, and I'll tell you why later on in the episode, but for now, just remember that while this part of the story is often told, it probably isn't true. It even appears on the UK Parliament website, but there isn't a lot of evidence to actually suggest that this, this actually happened. It is said that the conspirators used this delay to dig a tunnel. In December 1604, the other tenants in Percy's building packed up and left, and so apparently the conspirators were able to start digging a tunnel from his place with the aim of ending up under the House of Lords. Probably didn't happen for more than a few reasons. Firstly, while the conspirators had a varied skill set between them, from political to military affairs, none of them knew anything about mining or sapping or anything of the sort. Uh, the other reasons we'll come back to, uh, but suffice to say, probably didn't happen, despite appearing you know, in the official history of this event on the UK Parliament website, as I mentioned. Anyway... Even if this tunnel did exist, uh, it was never finished. The story goes that while digging the tunnel, the conspirators heard a noise from above the tunnel, and when they went out to investigate, they found a woman cleaning out a closed-off undercroft, a, uh, an undercroft that just so happened to be right under the House of Lords. Now, you might think this is a bit weird, given the tight security that surrounds government buildings these days. But this is the 17th century, mate. Things were very different back then. You could apparently lease a storage area that lay directly under a House of Parliament. No worries at all. I said before, the Houses of Parliament are a huge mess at this point. Uh, There are people that have nothing to do with Parliament coming and going from the House of Parliament, living there, living and working in this government complex ostensibly. There were shops and inns and dwellings and all sorts of stuff in this area. Uh, and the Undercroft, right, was a large storage area that was just rented out to people, one of many throughout the entire parliamentary complex, which, as I say, is nothing what you think of today as a parliamentary building. Anyway, this one, she's cleaning it out. Uh, she was a widow. Her late husband had been the tenant of this Undercroft. 
uh, an enclosed storage area that was, it was suffering from terrible neglect. It was filthy and unkempt, hadn't been looked after at all. Now, maybe the conspirators found out about this undercroft in a different way, not while tunnelling. Who knows? But what is certain is that on the 25th of March, 1605, they took over the lease of the undercroft from this widow. And once it secured the lease, they began to covertly move the barrels of gunpowder out of Catsby's place, rowing them over the river at night and storing them in this undercroft. Much of this gunpowder had been sourced illegally. Forks and the other conspirators were very well connected, as I mentioned. And there were a total of 36 barrels that were brought over and stacked up altogether. And by now, too, the plot had grown. Three more conspirators had joined the ranks. Thomas Winter's brother, Robert, John Wright's brother, Christopher, and another bloke named John Grant. Now, Grant in particular was to play a very important role in another aspect of the plot, one we haven't really covered here, what the plan was for once Parliament was blown to smithereens and the king and everyone else was dead. You remember the conspirators plan to put a new bum on the throne, the owner of which would hopefully be far more sympathetic to Catholics, if just not a Catholic altogether. Um, well, the person chosen to succeed King James the Sixth and First by these conspirators was his daughter, the, uh, the Princess Elizabeth, third in line to the throne, who as a little kid would have to have a regent. Now, the plan was for Thomas Percy's second cousin and employer, the Earl of Northumberland, we mentioned him before. The plan was for him to become the regent. Uh, He was a Catholic. He would guide and shape and help to direct young Princess Elizabeth into becoming much more tolerant of Catholics, if not just converting her altogether. Whether he was in on this plan remains uncertain. He might have known about it, but didn't join it officially or, you know, just didn't try to stop it. We're not sure exactly what the Earl of Northumberland's role was. But anyway... The plan was for Grant uh, to begin a Catholic uprising in the Midlands, where Princess Elizabeth lived, uh, and then capture her as part of this uprising as, as it spread. So Grant stockpiled weapons and collected war horses and made ready for the uprising, which would take place at the same time as the explosion. He'd grab Elizabeth, put her on the throne as James's daughter, so securing a level of legitimacy to the succession, and then have the Earl rule as a Catholic sympathiser. And hopefully, when Elizabeth reached the age of majority and could rule in her own right, she would have been talked around into being pro-Catholic as well, if not having been fully converted. So, easy peasy. That was the plan. All it needed was for most of the ruling class of England to be blown to bits. Further delays took place when the announced reopening of Parliament was pushed back even further to the 5th of November 1605. Now, this posed a little bit of a problem for the conspirators. After a brief time overseas, Fawkes returned to London in August, and after examining the stockpiled gunpowder, which was still in the undercroft, he found that it had gone off. Now, I didn't know that gunpowder could do this. Apparently, it can. They, I don't know, didn't keep it in the fridge, I guess. Very careless. But now it's decayed. It's useless, right? So the conspirators had to find new gunpowder. They did. They managed to. And this time, they stacked it in the undercroft, hidden under firewood. Why they didn't hide it the first time around, I don't know. Maybe these new barrels had gunpowder stamped across the side of them like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Who knows? Anyway... By the time we get to October 1605, the three final conspirators have been brought on board, uh, bringing the total to 13. There was Ambrose Rookwood, a wealthy Catholic who owned a lot of horses, which the conspirators would need to travel once the deed was done. There was Sir Everard Digby. He was recruited principally for his money. He was very wealthy and able to help pay for the place that Percy had rented once Percy ran out of cash. And lastly, there was a bloke whose name was Francis Tresham, and he was only let, on, let in on the conspiracy very reluctantly 
as the other plotters weren't actually sure that he could be trusted. After finding out about the plan to blow up the Parliament building and kill so many people, including the Catholics that would be inside, Tresham was apparently horrified by the idea. He wasn't keen on it at all, but it was too late. He was one of the conspirators now, and there was no way out anymore. So, there are 13, all told. The original five, Catsby, Winter, Wright, Fawkes, and Percy, plus Keyes and Catsby's servant Bates, seven, plus the two brothers, Winter and Wright, nine, and then Grant up in the Midlands, ten, and now these three, Rookwood, Digby, and Tresham, that's 13. The plot was finalised and ready to go. On the day that Parliament was opened, when King James and all the other powerful Protestants that rule England would be assembled in the House of Lords, Fawkes would creep into the undercroft, light a fuse that would ignite the barrels of gunpowder that were hidden there, and a mighty explosion would lay waste the Parliament buildings and kill everyone in the House of Lords, most importantly, King James. Fawkes would then flee to the European continent and meet with uh, Catholic powers in Europe to explain what had happened in England and secure their support for English Catholics. Meanwhile, an uprising would take place in the Midlands, where Princess Elizabeth would be seized and announced as James's successor, and from there, Catholic rule could finally return to England. Except, as you probably know, None of this actually happened. The gunpowder plot failed. It failed completely in every respect, and here's why. On the 26th of October, 1605, William Parker, 4th Baron Monteagle, was eating dinner with some associates when a servant came in and interrupted the meal, saying that a stranger had delivered a letter meant for him. Monteagle instructed the servant to read the letter, and here is what it said. My Lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tend to your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this Parliament, for God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. And think not slightly of this advertisement, but retire yourself into your country where you may expect the event in safety. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow, this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. This counsel is not to be condemned, because it may do you good and can do you no harm, for the danger is past as soon as you have burnt the letter, and I hope God will give you the grace to make good use of it, to whose holy protection I commend you. This letter is still around today. It's held by the UK National Archives, but even these days, we still don't know for sure who wrote it. It's thought that the letter may have been written by Tresham, the last bloke to have been brought into the conspiracy. You remember his horror at the idea of blowing up Parliament and killing all of those people. I mean, I've talked about how it would have killed King James and all of those powerful Protestants, but... It also would have killed a bunch of Catholics, this explosion. I mean, it would have killed people like Monteagle. He was a clandestine Catholic. He would have been there for the opening of Parliament. He would have been blown to smithereens. And Tresham had more than just that for a motive to warn Monteagle specifically. It's not just that he was Catholic. Monteagle was married to Tresham's sister. So the letter could have been Tresham looking out for his brother-in-law's safety. But look, we don't know. We really don't. It's just an educated guess. And there are those who think that the letter actually might have been written by Monteagle himself, who caught wind of this conspiracy and needed a way to 
uncover the plot without being tarred as a traitor himself. So maybe he just put on a performance with this servant as a way to feign ignorance of the plot while also bringing it to people's attention by having the letter read out in front of these people that he was eating with. The long and the short of it is this, we just don't know. But we do know what Monteagle did once this letter was read to him by his servant. He got on a horse and he rode to meet the English Secretary of State, Robert Cecil, And he gave him the letter, exposing the plot to the king's government and proving his loyalty to James. Meanwhile, most interestingly, the servant who had read the letter had family links to John and Christopher Wright, the conspirators. So he went off and told them that the jig was up, alerting the conspirators to the danger that they were in. And once the conspirators found out, Catsby and Winter rounded on Tresham, demanding to know if he had anything to do with this Montego letter. But Tresham convinced the other conspirators that he didn't. Whether he was telling the truth has, once again, never been properly determined. But anyway, on the 1st of November, King James returned from a hunting trip and Cecil showed him the letter. And James, with a startling level of prescience, seized on the word blow and concluded that the plot involved, in his words, some stratagem of fire and powder. Now, you, you might remember from episode 19 that James's dad, Lord Darnley, had been killed in an explosion. So maybe James had a, a preternatural suspicion of gunpowder. Who knows? In any case, the king was very clever in his response to this threat being unveiled. He didn't take any overt or public action. He ordered the Houses of Parliament to be searched from top to bottom to find any potential evidence of this plot or the gunpowder that may or may not involve. But he didn't make any public announcement. The conspirators, meanwhile, they were doing everything that they could to clandestinely figure out what impact the Monteagle letter had actually had. By the 4th of November, their research indicated to them that everything was fine. Their plans weren't compromised and the plot could go ahead as planned. Digby in the north was ready to start the uprising and seize Princess Elizabeth and some of the other conspirators were making ready to join him up in the Midlands. Meanwhile, Fawkes was making the final preparations to sneak into the Undercroft that night and light the fuse. But the search of the Houses of Parliament was ongoing and eventually it came to the Undercroft. The searchers went in and they found what looked like a big pile of firewood and they asked the servant who was there and seemed to be responsible for this pile of firewood what was going on with uh, with all the wood being stored here. And the bloke replied, he said, oh, it belongs to my master, Thomas Percy. And the searchers went, oh, okay, and they, and they moved on. But eventually they came back and reported their findings to the king. Now, when the king heard Percy's name, he wasn't happy at all. Percy was a known Catholic agitator. And so the the, the king instructed the searchers to go back to the Undercroft and investigate it more thoroughly. And so, late at night, on the 4th of November, a search party led by a bloke named Thomas Nivette headed back to the Undercroft. They arrived and found that same servant there, but this time he's dressed in a cloak and a hat and wearing boots with spurs, dressed, in other words, as though he's ready for a spot of horse riding. Why would a servant dealing with firewood be off riding horses in the middle of the night? Suspicions were raised higher than ever before. The servant was questioned. He gave his name as, don't forget, John Johnson, and before long, he was arrested and searched. He carried with him a lantern, that is still on display in a museum in Oxford even today. And when his pockets were emptied, they found inside them a pocket watch, a slow-burning twine fuse, and some tinder. 
So it is not looking good for him at all. And as the searchers began to lift away the firewood, sure enough, they found 36 barrels of gunpowder stacked beneath it. The plot was uncovered, the conspirators were undone, and John Johnson was dragged in front of the king in the early hours of the 5th of November. News of the foil plot spread quickly, and other conspirators all fled London at top speed, leaving the city before guards mobbed the city gates to apprehend them. The other conspirators all fled to the north, with Catsby convinced that an armed uprising could still go ahead and be successful in overthrowing James. John Johnson, meanwhile, was interrogated, and while he freely admitted that he, that he had every intention of killing the king and everyone else in Parliament, he insisted that he had been working alone, a claim that his interrogators did not believe. But he stuck to his story and revealed precious few details about himself or the plot more broadly. When a letter addressed to Guy Fawkes was found on him, he claimed that that name was one of his aliases and that John Johnson was indeed his real name. But try as they might, his questioners couldn't get anything else out of him. And so on the 6th of November, the day after the explosion was supposed to take place, King James authorised the use of of torture against Fawkes. Torture was, by this stage, forbidden in England, but the king was able to circumvent the ban by royal prerogative, and so Fawkes was sent to the Tower of London and, poor bastard, underwent the horrific torture that is being put on the rack. A torture rack is used by chaining a person to a frame, ankles down at one end, wrist raised up above the head at the other, And then the chains are tightened and wound around rollers to stretch the person out bit by bit. It is a horrendously grisly torture method. Your joints become dislocated, your muscles rip and tear apart, and as your ligaments and cartilage and bones begin to snap, you hear all sorts of awful noises coming from within your own body on top of the immense pain that you're undergoing. And poor Fawkes was no match for the horror that is the rack, and he broke by the 7th of November, confessing the details of the plot as well as the names and the roles of many of the other conspirators. But what's going on with the other conspirators at this stage? They had fled London to the north, as I said, seeking to drum up what support remained and attempt this armed uprising. Except wherever they went, they found former supporters of a Catholic revolt just melt away, not wanting to be tarred with the same brush as these treasonous plotters. Proclamations had been sent out far and wide about these conspirators and their guilt, and the small following that they had had before quickly abandoned them when they realised that they were indeed in extremely deep poop. Nine of the conspirators holed up in a mansion known as Holbeck House, owned by a bloke named Stephen Littleton, who was still sympathetic to their cause, However, armed with the information that Fawkes had finally given up, King James sent the Sheriff of Worcestershire, Richard Walsh, to apprehend the conspirators, and on the morning of the 8th of November, he arrived at Holbeck House with 200 men in tow. They surrounded and besieged the mansion, and before long, a firefight broke out. Catsby, John and Christopher Wright, and Percy were all killed, Catsby and Percy apparently by the same bullet, the story goes, Meanwhile, Thomas Winter, Grant and Rookwood were all taken alive, and the others, Digby, Bates and Keyes, and the potentially treacherous Tresham, were all arrested shortly thereafter. 
Only Robert Winter made a clean getaway at this point, although he too was arrested in the coming months in January 1606. With the conspirators all safely locked away, King James capitalised on the situation like you would not believe. He made sure everyone in England knew all about the plot and his escape, and he made sure to squeeze as much political gain out of it as possible. He claimed that the plot being foiled was evidence of the divine right of kings, how his escape from death had been a divinely appointed miracle. And he also used it as a way to catalyse his oppression and persecution of English Catholics, as anti-Catholic sentiment was sky high with a national outpouring of relief at the king having survived this plot. And uh, I should also mention that James used this as an opportunity to raise a lot of money for himself, as after this plot, the Parliament was very happy indeed to support the king in more or less everything he did, which wasn't just going after Catholics, but also raising taxes. So overall, James actually did very well out of the whole affair. It strengthened his position as king. It scored him not only sympathy, but a lot of political points. And he was able to pursue his anti-Catholic policy agenda with both renewed vigour and support and full coffers. But as for the surviving nine conspirators, however, oh boy, they did not do so well. All of them were held in the Tower of London and interrogated, and it's still unclear if they were tortured or not. The general consensus seems to be somewhere between probably not and definitely not. Uh, it looks like the just the threat of torture was enough for most of them to confess. The most important confession was Thomas Winters, as he had been part of the conspiracy from the very beginning, and he was able to give the most comprehensive account of the whole affair, although he did try to leave his brother Robert out of the story. But with confessions collected and evidence gathered, and it seems a few extra details invented for good measure, the conspirators were brought to trial in late January. By now, there are only eight. Francis Tresham uh, died while imprisoned, all the while trying to profess his lack of involvement in the conspiracy, uh, although he never mentioned anything about writing the Monteagle letter, which is another reason that we tend to have some doubts as to whether he was its, its author. But the trial was a lurid, over-the-top affair. The prosecution gave long and detailed speeches about the guilt of the accused, talking about their motivation, their intentions, the, the impact that their actions would have had if they'd managed to kill the king, along with all the other most important rulers in England. And they also described how the plot had been undertaken. And it's here that we come back to this tunnel that I mentioned before. Remember that? It seems like the prosecution just invented the tunnel, as none of the conspirators ever made reference to digging a tunnel or anything in any of their confessions. I suppose the prosecution just thought it made for a better story. Who knows? Anyway, the conspirators almost certainly didn't try to dig a tunnel under Parliament. Instead, they were just lucky enough to come across the Undercroft and use that instead. Still don't have a great understanding as to where the tunnel story came from or why it was invented. But anyway, look... The trial ultimately was for little more than, than show. The eight accused men were, of course, found guilty, and they were condemned to horrifically gruesome deaths, as was considered appropriate back then for someone found guilty of high treason. They would all be hanged, drawn, and quartered. But let me give you a little more detail as to just what that involves. And let me also warn you, this description is not for the faint of heart. 
First, the condemned would be dragged to the place of execution behind a horse, backwards, tied to the horse by the feet. So his head would bonk along the ground as he was being dragged. But that's just the beginning, because from there he'd be taken up to a scaffold and hanged by the neck from a noose. Not dropped down a trapdoor swiftly to break his neck. No, no, he wouldn't even be hanged until dead. He would instead be hanged for just a while, long enough to suffer absolute agony before being cut down while still conscious. But being cut down wouldn't be much of a mercy, because, as you might have guessed, it would only get worse from there. Next, he would be castrated. He would have his dick and balls cut off right in front of his eyes, and just because that's not quite enough, would have to watch while they were burnt. What's going on there? Then comes the next bit, disembowelment. He'd have his guts ripped out, and then just for good measure, his heart as well. But we're still not finished. Oh, no, because the corpse, by now, it is definitely a bloody corpse, mate. The corpse would be decapitated and dismembered, even more dismembered than before. Not a member to be found anywhere on the condemned once they'd been finished with. And then all of these nasty bits and pieces would be put on public display on spikes as a warning for any other potential traitors, as well as being a bit of a snack for any hungry birds who might come along. And that, without exception, is what happened to the eight surviving conspirators. Although some of them tried to avoid the worst of it, Keyes attempted to jump from the hangman's block with the noose around his neck so as to try to snap his neck, but that didn't work and he suffered the worst of it. Uh, But Guy Fawkes did manage to leap from the gallows and break his neck, therefore sparing himself the feeling of going through the grisly and gruesome parts that would have come afterwards by going to his death a little earlier than planned, although they still did all the stuff that I mentioned to uh, to his corpse. And just to make a point of things, both Robert Catsby and Thomas Percy's bodies were exhumed from where they'd been buried and were also decapitated, and their disembodied heads were put on display in front of the House of Lords, the very building that they had attempted to blow up. And that is the tale of the gunpowder plot. But it's not the end of the story of its legacy, because in the years that followed the plot, Catholics in England faced further persecution and oppression, and it would be more than two centuries until Catholics were allowed to worship freely across the British Isles. But even today... Catholics are excluded from the British line of royal succession, and the influence of the gunpowder plot doesn't stop there. In fact, that's just the beginning. From 1606 onwards, the English began to observe the 5th of November as a day of celebration, mandated by legislation well into the 19th century. Fireworks would be set off and bonfires would be lit. And a tradition emerged, using the bonfires to burn effigies of Guy Fawkes, the most famous of the gunpowder plot conspirators, given his role as the bloke who was supposed to light the fuse. Usually, this effigy, or Guy, would be dressed up garishly in old clothes and given a mask for a face and then chucked on the fire. And this tradition, Bonfire Night, continues to this very day, although it is much less popular than it once was. Interestingly, it spread well beyond Britain. It was celebrated in places like Australia. Within my lifetime, I'm old enough to remember Bonfire Night before it fell out of favour. Back when I was a little kid, you'd go along to to Bonfire Night, great big bonfire would be lit, and an effigy would be chucked on top of it. But I suppose we realised that In Australia, lighting huge fires just before summer, you know, in a country known for terrible bushfires, 
is a very bad idea. So the practice died out before I became a teenager. These days, you don't really see anything much on the 5th of November in Australia, although you'll still hear fireworks up and down the UK on on the 5th. And uh, it goes to show the enormous cultural impact that the gunpowder plot had that throughout the furthest reaches of the British Empire, bonfire night remained a thing for hundreds of years. But here is the most interesting thing about the gunpowder plot and its ongoing cultural legacy, and something that you might already have guessed at. The most culturally pervasive element of this entire story, something that has stuck around right through to today. The tradition to make an effigy of Guy Fawkes out of old clothes led to the word Guy taking on a new meaning. Uh, Years ago, you would use the word guy to describe someone who was dressed strangely, like an effigy, wearing these old clothes that had been stuffed with straw. So you would describe someone who was dressed weirdly as a guy. And then, as the years continued, its meaning changed again. It lost this association of strange clothing and just came to mean a man. Guy was, at one point, just another given name. But because one guy, capital G in particular, tried to blow up the English Parliament 400 years ago, his name now just means a man. So even if he didn't ever mean to, Guy Fawkes did a very bloody good job of securing a historical legacy for himself. Quite aside from being one of the very few people in history to enter Parliament with honest intentions, for the low price of being brutally tortured and executed for high treason, he also managed to insert himself into everyday vernacular. And 400 years later, we are still saying his name every day. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the gunpowder plot. And I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was so good to get across a topic that's been so uh, so commonly suggested by so many listeners. Thanks once again to Chris and Claire and Brenner and Graham and, and August and everyone else. Uh, a very fitting way to celebrate. I guess what is, I forgot the 250th episode of this podcast. Probably should have done something to celebrate or mark that, but I don't know, whatever. Maybe we'll do something for the show's sixth birthday, which is coming up very soon, or maybe I'll just... Forget about that as well. Uh, yeah, that's probably a safer bet. Anyway, look, whether this is the 250th episode you've listened to or whether it's the first, it is great to have you as part of the half Us History family. Thank you so much for contributing to the show's success. All the boring housekeeping stuff now, of course, halfhousehistory.net. If you want to be like these exalted listeners who have got in touch and suggested something like the gunpowder plot, please do. Contact form at the website, halfhousehistory.net, and there you'll find links to all the stuff, merch, shop, Patreon. If you want to join the Patreon, great time to do so. Ad-free listening, of course, in addition to bonus merch, behind-the-scenes stuff. You've heard it all before. A great uh, a great way to support the show as it continues to expand. Uh, keep an eye on your feeds this week for the first episode of quarter Asked History. These are the smaller-sized episodes that I've been planning for a while. First this one should be coming out later on this week, a couple of days after this one uh, is, is released. So keep an eye out and uh, I hope you enjoy the shorter form episodes as well. But that's enough of that. Going to close out the show. Of course, Well, actually, no, I couldn't find a good Reddit question this time around. I thought there'd be, I mean, I thought Guy Fawkes, Gunpowder, gunpowder Plot, all that sort of stuff, Fertile Ground, but no, couldn't find anything at all. So I had to go to funnyjokes.com and look for a joke to do with the gunpowder plot. So I really hope you enjoy this one because, oh boy, it is a real... Oh, hold on to your sides, my friends, because this one's really going to get you. Are you ready? <clears throat> what was Guy Fawkes' favourite meal? 
bangers and mash. Oh, what am I doing? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.